I, I, you know, I know your music so well, I've listened to it for so long. But in this age, the way we listen to music, I have no idea what album titles are. I have very little idea what songs go on. I know. Which records. Like, you know, you can just say to um, Siri, like, play Roseanne Cash music. And it'll be all mixed up and random. and Yeah. yeah. So I'll always listen to an album um, once or twice all the way through as an album. Mm-hmm. And then for a period of time. But then the song you start making these play. I mean, you do, must do the same thing. Do you still listen on vinyl or no, CD? What do I, you do? I, I generally listen in order, like you said, a couple times first. The sequence that the artist conceived, and then I start mixing up random. And in fact, the for the river and the thread when I was sequencing that, you know, I get really obsessive about sequencing. Yes, and I'm not that good at it, but I'm obsessive about it, and I get. Um, advice on that from the producer or from from John, whatever. But on Twitter, I just got into this kind of tar baby circle about it. And I put on Twitter, why am I spending all this time sequencing? Nobody cares anymore. And I immediately got like a hundred tweets. I care, I care, I care. I really care. Yeah. I do. I really care about it a lot. Like I'm thinking a lot about Rodney's last, Rodney Crowell's album, the one that you sing, it ain't, it ain't over yet. Oh, that song. That song's incredible. Oh, it kills me. But that album's like a perfect album, I think. Yeah. Telling the story of that time. And I have to listen to that album. In sequence. In sequence. Yeah. I'll occasionally listen to that song or the one about Guy, the 1972, that song about Guy yeah. Clark separately. But generally, I want to listen to that album. And I would say weirdly, even though you didn't write the songs on it, the list is like that. Yeah. Well, which is an album you made in like 2009. Right. And the sequence in that album is important, I think. Well, I like narrative arcs to album. I mean, as a kid, I loved concept albums. Um, the As a little kid, my favorite albums of my dad's were the concept albums, Ballads of the True West, Orange Blossom Special, Ride This Train. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and I always had that in my, and then Tommy, when I was a teenager, you know, those concept records really struck me. So I've got a thing for them. And even if it's not a concept record, just to have an arc to it, that makes sense. Well, we grew up treasuring albums. Yes. And, but even for, like I'm saying, I I treasure albums still, but you do, I mean, at any other time, I could still tell you sort of like the sequence of all the records that mattered to me till I was whatever, you know, I still know those, but it's just changed because of how we absorb this stuff now. That's so funny. I mean, I can remember the sequence of Beatles 65 and as a kid skipping over Mr. Moonlight. Yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Well, I completely know the songs that I, the songs that I skip on my favorite um, albums, but yeah, I could do pretty, I mean, I won't, we won't do this now, but I could do most Dylan albums. I In sequence? Tell you, most of them. Wow. Up that's to a, a certain, I mean, up to a certain point. Yeah. The ones that matter to me though, yeah, I completely know. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. My guest today is a living legend, Roseanne Cash. She's a great singer, songwriter, and, and writer as well. Her book, Composed, um, which I'm about halfway through because I didn't realize you'd, you'd written it, is stunning. All I wanted to do today was sit on the couch and read the book. Thank it's, you. It's written- so carefully and and beautifully and openly. I um and non chronologically. That you're saying I read I, Dylan's chronicles. I read Dylan's chronicles and um, it hit me. And you know it was non linear. He would just keep circling around. Yeah. 
And I loved that. And I, I, before that, I thought I can't write a memoir because I can't do it in this kind of chronological, linear way. And then when I read Chronicles, I thought I can do it. I, I can write, write a memoir like a songwriter. Yes. Well, the, although your book to me is in, I read you just that you described it somewhere like as pointillist or something like that. um, (laughs) But, uh, but it's not as, as impressionistic as Chronicles is you do, you do kind of land in spots. So yes, you'll jump ahead and you'll say, and that's why at that moment, when I saw that thing happen, I knew I was going to be in New York. Yeah. And then you'll take us there for a second. Right. Well, I saw repeating patterns in my life. That was the most interesting thing about writing a memoir is to see what patterns kept repeating and what things kept coming up until I resolved them. And, you know, in concept mirroring content, I actually resolved things by writing the memoir. I completely understand that. That must happen with songs, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes songs are like messages from the future too. I'm sure you and you know that in your own writing. It's like you write something, you go, what's that about? And then six months, a year, five years later, you go, oh. You solve stuff that way all the time. Absolutely. And you, you're right. You predict stuff. Well, because um, so your subconscious can see your mistakes before you can, right? So you can, you can sort of telegraph them to yourself in some way. That's true. And even more, like, even more real life stuff. I mean, I wrote this song, Black Cadillac, about death. Yes. And then everybody in my family started dying. And when I finished writing the song, I remember saying to myself, oh, no. Oh, no. It's like I knew it was coming. Right. Well, sure. And, and you write about death. Well, I really want to get into this because I love this passage in your book. And it's something I, I think about all the time about what music's art's purpose is in a way. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about uh, how country music used to be about death and family and I, the passage is gorgeous and how, how, how it started me really thinking about how so much art, uh, I mean, I, I don't watch Woody Allen movies anymore, but there's, there's no denying the genius. And he said, you know, if you're not writing about death and sex, you're, you're, you're kidding yourself. It's true, isn't it? It is. And I, well, which is why your your cover of Long Black Veil to me is the best version. I think it's the best version of that song. Oh my God! Stop! Thank I do. you. <laughs> I do. I do. I swear because well because you're singing it with a total historical awareness of Lefty Frizzell, of your father, well, of that's all true. the versions of it that came before. You are aware of who actually wrote that song. Yes. Of its tradition. Yep. Of the you know and and having a woman singing it and not changing the words you give this idea of of this kind of dignified death this mournful sadness and and it felt to me like a real cornerstone moment in your career the singing of that song wow that uh, brian that is so astute everything you said because my respect for the tradition that song came from the fact that it was co-written by a woman which was very unusual at the time this was written you know in the early 60s um, the themes of it, which are kind of central to uh, Appalachian and early country music, which is death, mortality, travel, family, loss. Um, honor. honor. I was just going to say central characters with integrity and honor. Um, 
And the fact, my favorite version was Lefty Frizzell's. Well, as I mentioned, yeah, I yeah. love Lefty. I love Lefty Frizzell's Me version too. of the song. I mean, and my dad's favorite version was Lefty Frizzell, even though my dad became identified with the song. Yes, you're your father's version, and for anyone who's, I, I can't imagine you're listening to this and you don't know that Roseanne's father's Johnny Cash, but, um, well, your dad brought the authority that he brought to everything yeah. to that song. But there's a heartbreak in you singing it because of when you made it and why you made it. And I, I think if someone's listening and they don't know your music, it's a great center moment in your career in a way mm. um, I, well, to then go song, backwards yeah. or forwards from. That song is central. You know, it's central to the tradition I work in, number one. And what you said about a woman singing it, I always loved that um, that thing that happened in early folk songs when women sang about other women, when women sang as narrators and weren't actually in the story, but just laid it out for you. I love that. Joan Baez did that all the time. Yes. It's um, it's a great, I mean, the storytelling tradition in, in music in that way is, has always also for me been a, a key thing. And... Oh, I want to I talk about more about that Appalachian thing, which I've been thinking about. In fact, it's l l like the first, oh, look at this. So, okay, your latest album is called, I just want to get this stuff so people know. The album we're talking about came out in 2009. Roseanne's latest album is called She Remembers Everything. And that album, which is the, is that the first album of original songs since The River and the Thread? Yeah. Well, The River and the Thread was my last record. That was 2000. It came out January 2014. She Remembers Everything just came out in November 2nd of this year. Right. And the one I was just talking about, it was called The, the, List, the List, which is yeah. a bunch of songs that- Those are all covers, obviously. Covers that your father yeah. told you to learn when you were 18. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I did have this as my first question, which I didn't realize, which was I, I love this passage <laughs> about country music um, and the death, loss, and the stuff about family mattered. And your music has always had loss as a subject. Mm. And even when we were mentioning honor, the thing about Long Black Veil is, right, it's it's people choosing to be honorable after committing a dishonorable act. So it's very complicated in that way. And um, your music has always dealt with heartbreak in a way with pain and heartbreak and loss. Um, you might assign blame, but you never only assign blame to one party. You're mm. always looking for your own culpability. It feels like you're always looking for your own um, areas of not being as dignified as you wished you were. Mm. And um, even when there's romance, your music has never been about like escapism mm. somehow. So can you talk a little bit just as a, a, a way to frame all this about the, the purpose of, of music and art as, as you see it, why this is something to give your life to? I think that artists are in the service industry and that the purpose is to um, offer the opportunity for the audience to feel their own feelings, to have their life reflected back to them, to have something revealed that was, uh, was hidden before that, to um, inspire, to challenge, to push to resolve things, you know, all of those deepest things in our psyche that we need to touch, art and music offer that opportunity. I mean, and that's as valuable as any other role in society, as valuable as any politician or your plumber, your teacher, your doctor. We need that. And to cut it off, um, 
it truncates our spirit if the arts aren't given the due that they have to have in a in a civilized society. The French realize that more than we do, you know. Yes, uh, they like stinky cheese more too. Yeah, right. Uh, I, mean, I like but, it. <laughs> no, they, but they give but, money to art and culture, and they value it, and they put it central to their society. But but, the, but there's a duty that comes with that, absolutely, which is to plumb to to. to not live on the surface as an artist to 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 own what it means to be an artist to right um in service yes. of that you have to be willing to turn yourself inside out don't you that's exactly right and it can be dangerous and uh, you know artists have far more than their fair share of mental illness suicide drug addiction because of that because you're always going to these places that if you don't have bridges to get back into a kind of normal rhythm of day-to-day life, it's very, very, very hard. And hopefully you learn to create bridges to come back. I found that oh, children- Oh, that's really great, Yeah, what you just said. Well, children to me were one of the greatest bridges because I loved my kids so much that I realized how selfish it was to stay in these kind of plumbing, these dark depths all the time when I needed to make their breakfast and be at a parent-teacher conference the next day, you know? Yes. But then I had to figure out a way to do the work and to still be present for the kids and in my life. Yeah, this is th- this conversation. Amy, my wife, writes these very dark, intense novels. They take her like eight years and they're as dark and um, disturbing and honest as you can imagine. And she's we had this podcast conversation that people respond to all the time because she does this exactly what she felt the battle always was, was how do you remain present? Mm-hmm. but also do this thing you know you have to do. How do you how how do you build your day to do it? Yeah. You were already a very successful artist before you had kids. Yeah, I had tremendous anxiety after I had kids because I didn't know how to do it at first. And I didn't want to be a bad parent. I wanted to I wanted to be there when they came home from school. And I had to tour to make record when I made records, you know, it just, I had to, it took a while to figure it out. Yeah. And people think, um, I remember Jacob Dylan, who I've, I've been friends with for a very long time since before you love Jacob. Me too. So uh, Amy and his wife, Paige wrote the movie, I smile back together based on oh, Amy's wow. book, my wife's book. And we've known them since we were in our very early twenties, but you know, Jacob had this line in his second album after he became successful, where he said, I'm an educated virgin. And the line <laughs> was about like, it doesn't matter what I watched my father go through going through it myself. Very different. Is different because you were you had the example and you talk about this great in the in the book. But before you had, I mean, you came out of the box and you were, a, I, I know your first record didn't get the release you wanted, but the first proper record you made was a huge success and you won. You know, you wrote the song that won all these awards and um, you had done it yourself. But I'm wondering for you then, um, was it as hard for you as it was for, for him and for the other members of your family to adjust and find your footing again. Well, you're right. I did have an example. And in fact, the, the really the only advice my dad gave me, he wasn't one for giving unsolicited advice. The only advice he gave me was take care of your babies first. And that was like an alarm in my head all the time. But still, as Jacob said, you still have to figure it out for yourself. It's, it's your life, your kid, your marriage. You know, how is this going to work? Your work. How are you going to get it out there? What I found, which was fascinating, is that when I had a baby, 
I didn't write very much for the two years after having a baby. And then it would come back. And then the next baby came. And again, the same thing happened, year or two years, like nothing. And it made me tremendously anxious at first. And then I realized, well, that's the life cycle. The baby deserves all of that energy. And then once you get the toddler on its feet, you know, then you can start doing your work. Well, again. then you hear because you only have that that you 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 have that kid's voice in your head, and then your own yeah. voice dis- disappears in a way. That's right. And you have to be able to hear it again, right? You have to be able to hear that that particular voice that calls you to the songs. Right, you're right, and you're in the service of the baby for a while, and. Well, you know, I mean, you're never not in the service of your well, kids. You never, but, my dad said it to me once. He just oh. said, "Listen, you never get a good night's sleep again, and not because no. they wake you, <laughs> just because of the, just because of the word." That's so true. Just because where and, are they all, and are they all okay? I, you know, that's so funny. I have five kids, and every night before I fall asleep, I run through them to know where they are, what they're doing. Yeah, you do, right? <laughs> Check them on fine friends. <laughs> right. Yeah, Life Three Hundred and Sixty is really good. Oh, you can yeah. really see where everybody is. Um. <laughs> I want to go back to the, you know, as you're talking even and and we're uh, talking in these plain, in a way, in this plain spoken way about these things that matter, the love of your kids, the fear of death, how to grapple with competing, um, competing impulses to create and to love and to care. One thing, uh, there are a few things. One in the book, when you talk about the delivery guy and you talk about whether an artist can ever leave it. I, I, that resonated so heavy for me. And in, in, as you find your answer throughout the book, which is no, we, we take it home with us all the time. Um, but, but, but the question I have, when I think about a song like long black veil, and I think about the way you write songs and have since your first hits, uh, and Rodney does this too brilliantly, I think, um, you're not afraid to be really plain spoken and direct the way these great songs were, but why do you think it's so hard now? Hmm. For for people to be that plain spoken, you know, uh, um, too much irony. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's this attachment to irony. It's it's been fun, but damaging in some ways, because we all became self conscious and felt we had to be ironic about really important, sincere things. Yeah, I think about um, I think about "Sing Me Back Home" sometimes. You oh. Know? Yeah, Merle's sure. one of the greatest songs ever written. Yeah, And you would almost get like laughed out of some music publisher's office in a way to be that earnest, to be writing a song about some guy being walked mm-hmm. to the electric chair. Mm-hmm. Somehow the displays of emotion. Um, now Merle was obviously one of the greatest writers who ever lived because of the specificity of it. But uh, I wonder if you yearn or or continue to try to, and especially the sort of uh, the juxtaposition because your your husband and producer and co-writer, John Leventhal, who's always been a musical hero of mine, writes incredibly complex stuff. Yeah. He textured stuff that loops on itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's constantly playing lines off other lines. And does that help you to then be direct and... The lyri- in the lyrics and the presentation? That's an interesting thing. Yeah, I think that, that the contrast does serve us um, and create something that kind of buzzes a little more than if they were collapsing in on each other in the same way. But, you know, on the new album that I just, just came out, She Remembers Everything, my, my lyrics became denser 
they I don't think they're any less direct, but they're some of them are atmos- more atmospheric. They're layered in a way, and there's a lot of feminine madness in these lyrics. You know, gothic. Uh, the emotion's still very plain, it's, though. It's in deep. a good way. You're, yeah. I, I find. I mean, I've listened to it a bunch, and I there's this one song that that there. What's the single from it? Um, she remembers everything. Right. That's constantly being played now on Outlaw Country. I hear oh, it all the time. Oh, they're playing. Yeah, uh, yeah. They may be playing. Um, not many miles to go, which is a song Old about songs. uh mortality. Not many months ago is about being in a long-term relationship and having that sudden realization that one of you inevitably is yes. going to leave the other. Yes. And it's- It's uh, like a cousin of that If We Were Vampires song by yeah. Jason Isbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. And it's um, it's so unspeakably sad. And at the same time, it makes every day more precious. And I started thinking about the objects in your life that have your resonance, you know, your glass of bourbon at the end of the day, John's Telecaster guitar, the Empire State Building we see outside our window, the stage, you know, the curtain rises every night. And all of those things will remain after we're gone. That that just kind of, I couldn't stop thinking about that. Like these little objects will outlive us and who will touch them and will they know about us because of that? Yeah, that's gorgeous. And um, when, you know, when our, I mean, we think about this a lot too. Uh, but you're a kid, Brian. It's only, I'm like <laughs> nine years younger than you or something. I'm 52. <laughs> so, but um, it, when, yeah, I'm, you're 11 years, I know you're 11 years older than I am. Okay, you can stop there. You're 11 years and maybe we'll see how many days older than I am. No one can hide it anymore. It's no, just I mean, we have on, Wikipedia pages, right? How are you going to yeah, hide I it? I was just, yeah, I was trying to figure it out because I've like known of you for so long because I says, poor, our fathers knew each other. And so I, I, you know, I just have known of you. I was trying to figure out, are we closer to the same age or not? And because, you know, your husband and I worked together when I was in the music business a couple he, oh, times. Oh, he said to tell you hello, by the way. He's the greatest guy, that guy. Yeah, you really picked a good one. <laughs> you picked a good one there. There is nothing easier for me to talk about, almost nothing, actually, than The New Yorker and how great it is. I've been reading The New Yorker for as long as I can remember because it is the smartest magazine out there. It's also a magazine that uh, deals in feelings and in the world as we live it. Uh, there's cultural criticism, there's poetry and fiction. For me, the long-form reporting, the level of depth that the writers of The New Yorker uh, get to when they're trying to explain the world makes it required reading. It's also uh, wonderful to have something that you know will reward the time and attention. And when you have writers like Gia Tolentino, Ronan Farrow, uh, Helen Rosner, my pal, writing for um, this magazine, you know it's going to reward that time. So look, and you can get it home delivered. Uh, you have access to this incredible online library that I think has like every article ever written in The New Yorker since like 1920s. So um, subscribe to The New Yorker. I don't even understand what you're waiting for. In fact, don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners of the moment save 50% when they enter the code moment with this special offer. With this offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6, plus get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo of print and digital. Subscribe to The New Yorker and read something that means something. 12 issues for 6 bucks and a free tote bag. 
when you go to newyorker.com slash moment. Do it. Well, what I was thinking about about this point of view thing, you're exactly right, but is how hard it is to stay present because of this, because everything you're seeing, it, uh, that stage will exist in a way, but not the way you saw it. The yes. glass of bourbon will exist, but not the way you saw the glass That's of bourbon. True. Not the way you tasted it when it rolled around your tongue. Because right. the point of view is your when you're that's why the Sopranos ending was so beautiful because point of view when your point at your particular way of seeing see that's why you're so good at what you do I mean now I have to think about that like does the object itself change because the point of view I mean that's that's quantum physics we're getting into now <laughs> it, it is but it's also emotional it's yes. like the whole world actually ends Yes, for but uh, in a way, it's gone, and all. And for, so that's for the uh, it's for other people to then see that and see in in a weird way, like see you seeing that, right? For your kids to remember the way yeah. you would hold that glass of bourbon. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, and that's and, the beautiful thing about art, about what you do, is it raises these questions. What other questions are there other than these really deep questions besides what are you going to watch on TV and what are you having for dinner? No, <laughs> you know? I mean, although you and I can go back and forth a lot on Twitter <laughs> on how do we get the bum out of the out of the building down. And I mean, you know, that's the other, the other thing, but that'll eventually go on. But I do want to talk about legacy a little bit because there's this other moment in, in your book. And I know we're talking about your album, but having, but being in the middle of your book now, it just raised a bunch of stuff for me. And, uh, and I also think like these things all go together. I think like your records from the list to here and your book are all of a piece in a certain way. Mm. They're different and there's a deepening going on, but there is a reckoning. There is a reckoning happening in your work. That's really true. In fact, the list, um, Black Cadillac and The River and the Thread are kind of like a trilogy because they are reckoning exactly as you say, reckoning with legacy, reckoning with the past, reckoning with the South the physical South, you know, the the geographical resonance of Memphis and the Delta and my own ancestry there and how it, where I need to break the chain and what I can still treasure, you know, and how much I owe to black musicians in the South, you know. I mean, it was so humbling. It's like I knew it, but it didn't let it sink in until writing the songs on the river and the thread that everything I do practically, I owe to a black musician who suffered and didn't get a fraction of the attention that I get. And that is so humbling to me. And that's legacy. I mean, that is what you're, that's the reckoning, part of the reckoning that you're talking about. Yeah, that reckoning. And then, you know, once you say goodbye to your parents on those three albums yeah. and on everyone you love yeah. who was older than you on those three albums, now there's only one more person to say, I mean, all artists think about this, right? It's your set. Then it's now it's, well, yeah. what does this mean for me? That's, but see, that's exactly on She Remembers Everything. Right. That's what I start reckoning with, mortality. Right. that's what I'm saying, your own. The end of a relationship. I mean, the song, I, the lyrics on the song, Everyone But Me, what's interesting is that the reckoning and um, putting the past in its place in those last three albums has allowed me to be angry now. And in a way that doesn't hurt anybody or blame anybody, but in Everyone But Me, I say, I gave up my name for you. Yes. I gave up my edge. And 
accepting that. You know, at some point you have to that say- That really jumps out, by the way. I gave up my record. edge. No, I gave up my name for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that idea. Yeah. And yes, that whole couplet there, that really jumps out. Like every time I've heard it. It's interesting. I picked that one too. Uh, yeah, to say <laughs> to right say. now, it is. <laughs> because, of course, you kept your, I mean, you are professionally, you've always been Roseanne Cash. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet, for so many years, and it still happens, of course, is people, you know, my dad has this iconic status, and people will sometimes want to look through me to see him. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced that early in your career too. But probably not anymore. <laughs> not, not, no, and not in the way that no. you, no, not in the way you did. I'm a very successful, amazing guy, and like, you know, my biggest hero and influence. But, you know, your father is sort of, well, this is the thing, right? Um, as I told you, I met your dad once, and it was like uh, shaking his hand. You felt like you were shaking Mount Rushmore's hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really did. He had a presence. He definitely did. Well, you know, you, you draw this image, though, in your book of your father's back as you see him walking away from you. Mm. And it's a gorgeously written passage, but what it serves to do is make that legacy thing even larger because this is the thing about your father and his back. Just the picture in my mind of his back, his shoulders, his neck, his gait, it brings with it so much more. Like it could almost bring me to a place of real melancholy about what the America that he stood for. Just mm. picturing it. Like you read your book and you read everything else about him and you understand he was a deeply flawed person. And none of us are as good as... None of us are as good as the character we portray to the public. We, we're portraying the best part that we have. I, I, I often, my kids and I joke about the fact that when I'm doing this, I'm the most focused attend. I'm, there's a, I am exactly the same person, but, I'm, but none of us are as good as the thing, right? So accepting all that, on the other hand, the America that your father recognized as a possibility and hope for what we could be for how humans could be to each other. Nobody was better, maybe in the history of music other than like Robert Johnson or the Mississippi Sheiks or whatever, but nobody was better at explaining the sort of random want and darkness in humanity Mm -hmm. than he was, but in service Mm. of something else, in service of explicating what, uh, what could cause a good man to go bad in service of explaining what a kind of institutionalized boredom does to people, right? He would, uh, through that music, give you back this gift of the possibility of your own life, not giving into all that stuff. And he stood for those who couldn't stand for themselves, which is all to say, like, how do you fucking manage this on a daily basis? Like that yeah. you're, that, that you're, be, because and you were so young when you became so successful on your own. And I think you and Jacob are the only two people to ever pull it off. I've really been thinking about it. Liza and Minnelli. Sort of, but it had a huge, co- no, I, I can't, I can't. Okay. I think Liza became a star. Yes. Liza Minnelli became a star. Yeah. But, but by the time Liza Minnelli was your age, it, it over, I think it, it overwhelmed Right. Her. That's the danger, isn't it? Yes. Be subsumed by it. I mean, I guess, you know, uh, I guess Hank Williams Jr., but I can't really credit that either in the same way. It's different. But the point is, how do you grapple with it? Like, and with the remove of time, because even from when you wrote the book and even from when he died, now so much time has passed. There are still, there are new generations of people. But why do you think he still means so much? 
to even people who aren't steeped in country music? Right. Well, he's he's a screen for a lot of people. They project their yeah, own agendas the onto book. him. And um, right, left, center, saint, every part of the spectrum thinks they know Johnny Cash and that he represents their agenda. And they become furious at me if I don't support that, if I don't mimic what they think about. So how do you process that though? How do you, because the question is, I guess it's twofold. One, can we find our way back to the America that he wanted us to be? I hope so. I mean, it was it's a simple idea, isn't it? I mean, when you're talking about service, the service of art in general, but then he had an, an ideal of practical service too. You know, prisoners, Native Americans, the downtrodden, poor. Um, and he could hold two opposing thoughts at the same time, which a lot of people don't seem able to do right now. He supported the troops and he um, opposed the war. He went to play for the troops in Vietnam while being vociferous about his opposition to the Vietnam War. Now, who does that now? You know, who holds those? They have everybody is so rigidly defined. And I think that's. I mean, these pe- a lot of these people, you know, because I'm an activist in gun control and I have been for 20 years and because I'm a liberal and they assume that my dad was a fundamentalist, conservative, Christian, right-wing, gun-toting, whatever. He was so not that. Well, then they're not real. I mean, the, those the, the whole point of shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Of, so he was acting. Well, of course he was. But beyond that, he's his, the guy's there in prison and listening to the train and he has incredible empathy for everybody in the song, for the guy who was shot, for the guy shooting, for the jailer. He yeah. is, it's all empathy. It's all human yeah. understanding. So mm-hmm. many of his songs were like that. Where he's, he, and, and the, the life he lived. But, but for, for you- are you able to separate still now your own artistic mission and vision from his? I, oh, yes. Ab, the answer to that is absolutely. Because I, at this point in my life, I know who I am. I know the kind of lyricist I am. I know the kind of singer I am. I know what I do. Um, DNA wise, of course I'm connected to him. I mean, dad told me once, he said that he went to uh, Dr. Ossoff, who was this famous doctor uh, for voice in at Vanderbilt. And um, Dr. Ossoff had said to him, do you think your voice is like your daughter's? And dad said, no, I don't think they're anything alike. And Dr. Ossoff said, they're identical. Wow. He said he did the spectrograph or whatever it's called. So the DNA component is definitely there. But I grew up in Southern California in the 60s and 70s. Dad grew up on a farm in Arkansas. I mean, everything that's informed us has been very different. Um, Although the North Star of the mission isn't that, that the North Star <laughs> isn't that different though. Of writing that's, about, of, of- Yes, that's so true. Of writing about- Real people, real emotions, the depth of human experience, suffering, How travel. to live when you know you and everyone you're, you love. How do you live when you know, as my, one of my favorite songwriters, Slade Cleve says, everything you love will be taken away. How do you- Oh God, that's so heartbreaking, isn't it? 
Yeah. But you, that's but you the, write about I that mean, all the time and sing about that, that all the time. That is the, uh, I think that that is the hallmark of a true artist is not being afraid to stare that in the face. You know, a lot of people avoid it yes. because it's t- excruciating. But to be able to look at it, create, take the rawness of that and to create something of beauty and meaning, I mean, that's it, right? That's it. It really is. If you can, yes, it, it, and not destroy you. yourself. You know, like Jackson well, Paul, dest- right. Pollock took that rawness and created beautiful art, but then he destroyed himself in the process. So we go back to the idea of the bridges. You know, how do you... How do you find your way back to yeah. humanity? And through love is what your answer is in a way. Yeah, I think so. Through the risk of it. I mean, through risking it. Go check out the live episode of the Origins Podcast with special guest Sarah Jessica Parker brought to you by the American Express Business Gold Card. To celebrate the launch of the new business, Gold Card host James Andrew Miller sits down with Sarah Jessica Parker to chat through how she turned her business idea into gold. Known as an actress and producer, she's also a serious businesswoman with advice and best practices to share. The new business gold card helps businesses get the most out of their spending by enabling card members to automatically earn four times membership rewards points on the top two select categories where their business spends the most each month. Business gold also provides access to a suite of solutions including a built-in pay-over-time feature giving business owners the flexibility, the tools they need to successfully run and grow their business, from managing cash flow to hiring top talent. Visit amex.co slash business to learn more about Business Gold and visit www.originspodcast.com to hear the special Origins Podcast episode featuring Sarah Jessica Parker. Fascinating to me to listen to this album and Rodney's album too. Um, and try to put all the pieces together of the time. You know what I mean? How you guys both found your, because you're, you guys are all friends. You sing together. There's yeah. something very moving about that song to me. It, um, ain't over. it ain't over yet. Yeah. I, I was so moved by that song. It was just, you know, it's once in a while, something will come to the surface like that, that is really, really beautiful and meaningful and the way he organized it you know it's got these three scenes and then three people on the record it's beautiful yeah. really gorgeous when your voice comes in it really makes the record um so one of the things i like to talk about on here these moments of inflection where uh something either was very well or very poorly and how people deal with it and you were successful so quickly and it was a song you wrote um seven year seven year ache and um which answers, you know, even though uh, the tradition in, even though you're not really a country artist, but you were making country records and there's a big tradition in singing other people's songs. You know, your father sung, sang a lot of other people's songs. Um, but it was the full, you had the full ride. You did it, right? That's wonderful, but that's also really, really hard sometimes to handle. And I'm wondering how you absorbed it. How, how did it affect you to actually accomplish it? And how did your family react to it? Well, I, it scared my mother a lot because, you know, my dad's success had, or she thought my dad's fame and success had caused him to get on drugs and, and to be unfaithful and ruin their marriage and everything. So she sees her daughter going into the same business and having this sudden success. Well, my mother was scared to death. Um, I was also very anxious. I was 24 years old. I just had my first baby, if you can imagine, at 24. 
all of a sudden I've got this huge record. People want me to do things. They want me to tour and I've got a little baby at home. I was paralyzed with anxiety. And the truth is, Brian, I wanted to be a songwriter. I didn't want to be famous. And that was a real reckoning with me, how to handle public attention, stay true to myself and really be a writer who needs anonymity. You know, writers need anonymity and privacy. So it was, it was a juggling. It's taken me 40 years to work it out. <laughs> so it did throw you for a loop it did. when it happened. It did. And how did you sort of keep going? Because you had a string of successful. Yeah. I mean, once you're on that treadmill, you know, you do keep going. And I, I wanted to get better as a writer. Like, did you have the thing in you? Because it, um, even though, as you say in your book, and it's true that in country music, there's a t- tradition, there's not the same kind of resentments for the families, people like mm. families continuing something on. But still, there's there must have been the thought in the back of your head before you'd made it, how are people going to judge me? Oh, my God. For years and years and years. You wondered, like, are they think, you know, do they think that I didn't really do this? Or well, not- I did it myself, but, you know, I was helped by... Yeah, I thought that. And also I thought, I mean, it would rankle me that the first questions would always be about my dad, that oh, they yeah. wanted to get through me to see my dad, talk about like- Like if people come to your concerts wearing Johnny Cash t-shirts. Well, that did happen. Of course. Yes, particularly right after he died. And it still happens once in a while. But, I, you know, I just kept showing up for work. I had my own engine- and my own compass, and I just kept following it. And no matter if I was hurt or felt like I wasn't ever going to be considered as important or as good or as worthwhile, or no matter what I thought, I just kept showing up for work. And I got better as a writer. And I go by something Martha Graham said, which is that it doesn't matter what people think of your work. It doesn't even matter what you think of your work. It only matters that you keep doing it, keep getting better, and put it out in the world because the world needs it. Well, yeah, you know I'm. A, I mean, you know I'm obsessed with that idea of you have to do the work. You the have rest to of do it the work. doesn't. Well, to that end, uh, when you've had so those years that you had kids, you didn't write during that time, and now you're kind of sanguine about it. Were you? Because I, for me, the thought of not being able, the thought of being blocked again, I was when I was 30, I was a blocked writer. Terrifying. Terrifying, you know? So that's why I make sure I write every single day. I do something. I write longhand. I, I make sure that there's some way that I'm tipping the subconscious into into doing what we do. Mm-hmm. That's smart. Something. Do you write every day or no? Um, if I'm not physically writing it, I'm turning it over in my head. Like, what is the key to this verse, where is this one going, you know, and then I, I'm actually writing prose again too. So I'm keeping that, you know, write a little bit every day. What does drive you to it still? What do you think it is that propels you into this work still? I feel an urgency about it. In fact, every year it becomes more urgent. Really? Yeah. That, uh, I mean, I was talking to Rhett Miller, who's a great songwriter mm-hmm. and beautiful musician about this the other day, about the engines that we both have that drive us. And, you know, he said, sometimes don't you just want to turn it off and just go, give me a minute. 
<laughs> just give me a minute. And it's like that great thing that it was, it's attributed to Tom Waits and I hope it's not apocryphal. I hope he actually said it, but he was in a car driving and he suddenly got this great line came to his head, you know, and a great idea for a song. And he's on the freeway and he can't write it down or do anything. And he finally, in total frustration, he looks up and he says, can't you see that I'm driving? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yes. I wish you felt like that. Like, just give me a minute. But those are the best moments. How do you deal with it when it's when 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 it's not there it comes home and when it comes home oh i feel kind of empty and dried up and what do you do uninspired i listen to other music that really inspires me that's helpful what is what kind of music or visual art right i i go to a different discipline i go to music that's what i go to music because it's not my discipline right go to a different discipline i do that a lot i go see my friend who does sculpture i go to the met and just stand in front of that painting of joan of arc I've looked at that painting a million times. Um, other music oh, will that's like- a huge thing to do, by the way. That sounds, so as I say, I rarely, I don't often just talk directly to listeners, but I, I will say going to a museum sounds, it's loaded with so much baggage and it feels mm-hmm. like a precious thing in a way and like a crazy luxury and also like, oh, what do we all know about art? But doing it a couple times a year, is an, it's really worth it, don't you think? Oh my God, yes. Even if you think you don't know anything, even if you think it's going to miss you, just wander around till one hits you. There's this Eve Klein at um, MoMA that I use for that purpose, this, this blue huh. rectangle that I'll sometimes just go look at. And I don't know why. I don't know why that blue rectangle moved me. I don't do it as much now, but I used to. I used to go in the beginning of my, when I became a writer and I would just go sit in front of it. There, isn't it funny how you find something like that that stirs you and you can't even explain why? My daughter um, told me how much she loved that painting of Joan of Arc at the Met. And so we went together and then it started sinking in like why she loved it so much. There was this transformation at the center of it and this angel in the shadows and back of her and this woman who's completely taken over by inspiration and something divine. Like, so you'd sit there and look at her and go, I want to be that taken over. Yes. Uh, did you go see Condola Rashad in Joan when it was up this summer? No. It was magnificent. Was it? She was oh, incredible. <laughs> and um, watching that Watching that version of Joan made it relatable to me. The, 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 at, and I understand what you're talking about it. Sometimes artists feel like they're swept like that. Yes. Yeah. That they're in the thrall of something that they can't control. But that's what we chase. I, I, yes. For me, the battle is to do it with that when that's not happening and to trust that in some way. It'll be there. It'll yeah. show. It'll show. Um, yeah, I think what you're talking about is showing the muse that you're serious about it, like showing yes. up so the muse will show up. So what else do you do to prime the pump? So you'll look at art, listen do you, to music. Do you meditate? Do you walk? Do I you- do meditate a little bit, only like 10 minutes a, a day. But um, yeah, nature will sometimes do it for me, although I live in the city like you do. And, you know, that's hard to come by sometimes. But music, I mean, diff- music different kinds of music, you know, classical for some 
things or the Rolling Stones for something else, you know. And like after 9-11, I remember sitting in the kitchen on a stool and the British proms were on and they played um, Barbara's Adagio for Strings, which is the saddest piece of music ever written. And they played it at the British proms proms for us, for America. I cried like a baby for an hour and it was so liberating. It was, it's like they did something for me. Yeah, they gave it to me. So who's your ideal listener? Who who do you Uh, think of? That's so funny. I do have ideal listeners. So who's your ideal listener? Um, I don't know who she is, but she's not harsh, but she's exacting. And she's, um, she has really high standards and good enough is not acceptable. But she's full of love, too. It's like when it's right. She's rooting for you. She's rooting for me, right. She'll give it up to me if I get it. <laughs> right. So you have that in mind in of some course. way. Of course. Do you have an ideal listener? Probably. I don't, I haven't, yeah. You haven't conceptualized it, but it's there. I mean, it's probably um, the 32-year-old David Mamet or something. Like oh, there you go. David Mamet, he was 34, writing those plays. Like, not the guy now who's like, I think, become something else. But yeah. that the guy then. You know, and probably actually guy who just lives, Joel Cohen. But, um, and I just know I'll always fail. It'll never be, I'll never, you know, I, I, it's not about me. Um, but, <laughs> no, I mean, I just have to do the, you do it. Yes, you you, you want to try to put, um, I agree with you. I want the sense that someone, I want to know that I'm uh, doing the work for someone who will notice when it's rigorous and notice when mm. it's not rigorous. And so that forces me to apply rigor. And I do think that's important. Right. And also to write, like you're talking about David Mamet and Joel Cohn, you write in the, know the tradition you're writing in. Yes. I find that with young people a lot because I do, I teach songwriting um, as a guest teacher on occasion. And a lot of young people will be writing like folk songs and they've never listened to Dylan. I said, you you absolutely cannot do that. You have oh. to know the tradition you're working oh, in. Oh yeah. When I go speak at a class, if um I and if I mention a movie, if I mention a French movie and I don't see people writing it down, I'll, I'll say, listen, it's not about the movie I say, but if you want to do this for your life, the way we all communicate with each other is by talking about the yes. films, the records, the books, the paintings that moved us. Yeah. The reason we got into this right. is because of that. So if you hear um, that somebody, that a movie or a painting is important, figure out why. Right. Then decide. You may think it sucks. Great. Have it. Process it. Build the prism through which you're going to look and see this work. Right? Totally agree. Um, and curiosity is your friend, you know? Yes. Um, I mean, I've even had kids say to me in class, well, I don't want to listen to anybody else because I want to be original. And I feel like saying, you're not original. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bjork comes along once a century, <laughs> right? I Like, Bjork's original. That's an original artist. I'm not even, you know, whether you want to listen to her or not, That, but that, yes. Um, and also, I mean, Harold Bloom talks, but you know, the way to become original is you, you try to compete with the, the stuff that influenced you and maybe sure. imitate it. And then it, something happens and you end up making an original piece of work. But I fully 
um, agree with you about understanding the tradition. And by the way, about paintings. I mean, my apartment, my apartment's filled with paintings. They're because I, uh, no, it just is. And right behind you is an intense painting. Wow. And that's by an artist called Victor Rodriguez, who I love. Amazing. He's been painting that same woman for 30 years. Oh, really? Yeah. I love artists with an obsession. He's an obsessed, Victor's an obsessed artist and it's fantastic. Um, but th- I agree with you about the discipline. I sometimes write songs never to really play for anybody because I want to do something where I'm a beginner. Oh, I love that, Brian. I want to feel like a beginner too. Yeah, to keep that sense of bringing all your all that you've learned, all your expertise yeah. to this craft, but remembering what it felt like to figure stuff out for the first time. Yeah. So for me, the idea of if I can come up with a, a rhyme that feels true and real in a song and an idea, something about that. Now I'm not, as I'm sure, I'm not thinking about writing a movie or a TV show when I'm doing that. I'm not even thinking of it consciously like it's for that. But I know that it's a gift. It, it gives this gift back on the other side. Well, that's really true. I find that with prose and songwriting that they they talk to each other a lot. Oh, what a good way to say it. Yeah. And, one, and then I get in themes that I obsess about and write. Like I, for some reason, I got on this idea of bells and roses together. So I wrote a song called Bells and Roses. And then I wrote this short story that had bells and roses. And then, you know, eventually I work it out of my system. And you're a published short story writer too. Yeah. I wrote a book of short stories. I've written a lot of essays. And I wrote um, several essays for this New York Times blog called Measure for Measure, songwriting. About writing songs. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe someday I'll have the guts to play you a song of mine. Um, Probably never will ever. Uh, Couple more things before uh, I let you go here. Um, so, how do you check in with yourself if you're you don't really meditate much? What do you well, do I to do check every, in on I your do, own sanity? I do meditate every day, but it's a short meditation, and I do that breathing, you know, six in, yes. six out, just to bring myself back into the planet and try to disengage from my devices, you know throughout yes. the day regularly just to think and um i guess through the you must through the prose writing find your way back to yourself too definitely and songwriting i i mean i know who i am through my writing you know i, I it's the, i can't even say it clearer than that on the on she remembers everything i wrote the title track she remembers everything and i went Oh my God, I'm still working out trauma after I wrote that song. Like the the early trauma you have and where you hide it in your body and how many years you start trying to work, work it out through first all these destructive means, then productive means, but not realizing it's still there. And then finally, you know, at some point you got to cut the chain. Yes. Free yourself of it all. Yeah. Free yourself of- And it may take decades. It do, well- It does take it decades. It can. Yeah. But you, you just said like the uh, the episode description for this podcast, for Roseanne Cash, on figuring yourself out through writing, which is great. That is- <laughs> Is that your byline? Be, no, that'll be your like description <laughs> of this episode. Um, Couple last knowing things. Knowing yourself so, through writing. Knowing yes. yourself through writing. Yeah. So uh, your, your husband, John Lemethal, is one of the world's great musicians. 
how, how do you guys work together? What's the process? How do you collaborate? And you've we, done this, like you collaborated with Rodney a lot. And now yeah. you, how do you, how does it work? John and I write together a lot. He doesn't write lyrics. Um, so I always write the lyrics when we're collaborating. And often I will give him a lyric and he'll write the music to it, or I'll give him a half finished lyric and he'll start writing music, then I'll finish it. Once in a while, he'll give me a melody and say, will you write something to this? But it's usually the reverse. And he's very, very particular about syllables, meter, um, you know, and so sometimes he'll want me to lose a syllable, change a meter, and then we then we fight. <laughs> oh, sure. But are you are you coming with a melody too then? You have them No, he writes melodies. So you'll write the words and then lyrics, he'll yeah. you'll write the lyrics. Yeah, he'll put a music <laughs> he'll put a music bed down. Yeah. And then no, no, no. that'll suggest he, a melody or he'll write the melody no, on his guitar. He writes the melody. He's and he's a stickler for it too. He doesn't want you to change the melody. Um, so that's where we have arguments because I'm a singer. Right, and you're like, I want to go up here. Yeah, I'm a singer and I have my own intuition about notes, <laughs> to put it plainly. And eventually we end up compromising somewhat. But he's, he's talk about rigor. He's incredibly rigorous. So as parents, how do you guys, because you have, I know your son just released his first his album. First he's only put one truck single. out. Single. I only hear, heard this, saw the yeah, single. Yeah, he's only on. put one up yet. It's, it's called um, This Love is Sarcastic. He's a talented person. He's a really good songwriter. He's very um, harmonically complex, which is kind of fascinating to me. But I can't imagine. Well, he, I can't imagine like how it is for him to have the two of you. Does, are you he you, says, Mom, I, I don't want to do anything by my connections. He told me that. But what about it's when you listen to the music? What happens? Oh, it moves me so much. I mean, uh, I have to Will he say, play it for both of you? For you and John? Yeah, he plays. It. He played it for us. He made his album in our basement. Right. <laughs> he doesn't want anything. He doesn't want attention because of his grandfather either. I mean, this kid's got a lot of- That's a heavy burden. It is a heavy it's, burden. Three generations. You're right. It is. All you can do is root for him. I root for him. At I least just he want doesn't him to have the last name Cash, though. No, thank God. Leventhal. But I just want him to finish college, too. How he's, old is he? He's 19. He's at the University of Chicago. Right. And But he wants this, what he wants to do. Yeah, but he, I mean, he's a philosophy major. Um, and he is actually very rigorous as a student, too. So I'm hoping he can manage both. And... Uh, well, yeah, that, that was people's hope for you too at some yeah, point, right? Yeah. I mean, you were 18 and you left. Yeah, I left. <laughs> I mean, so he may just have to go, I mean, he may just have to go make his make his music, right? Yeah, it's true. And um, Dia, can you find any hope for the world right now? I've been um, really deeply troubled, particularly as a woman and as the mother of young women. I thought progress went in one direction. I did not anticipate this kind of regressive cruelty in American society. It's just, it's dispiriting in a deep way because I, I thought that before I died, I would see certain wonderful things happen in this country. And now I despair that I won't see them, you know? 
So I guess that's a no then for hope. Well, but <laughs> how do you find Ryan, hope? Because I think you will see them. I, I believe I in so. the human spirit. Actually. I do too. And I am an optimist by nature. And so I, I keep saying, well, this had to surface before we could go back to progress going in one direction. It had to surface, right? The ugliness. Yes, I agree. Well, yeah, you have to show the ugliness to find the beauty on the other side of it. You know, Roseanne, I'll, I'll end it here by saying to the to to you and everybody that you know you're undoubtedly a great American artist, and it's a weird thing because it's rare that two come from the same family. And I think obviously your 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 dad brought a lot of attention to you in a certain way, but re- reading your work and listening to it, you are one of the great American artists. And Thank you, Brian. no, it's it's undeniable. I'm not. It's not like I'm saying something that's new or novel, but I will say that. People listening to this should check out the new album. If you don't know Roseanne's music, just go listen to her version of uh, the the Veil song and uh, the Long Black Veil, and then dive in. Go get her book and go get the new album and uh, listen to it in sequence. She puts a lot of time into sequencing them, so <laughs> listen uh, in sequence. Roseanne, you're on Twitter. Tell your Twitter name. Uh, it's just Roseanne Cash. R O S A N N E C A S H. Roseanne Cash. You and I follow each other. We do. We interact on the Twitter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can find me at Brian Koppelman. And if you want to write me, you can write me at themomentbk@gmail.com. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, Roseanne. Thank you. 